Let me say as I start this morning that uh, I have been looking forward to this day for a long time. In the 41 years that I've been a pastor, I'd never had a two-month vacation. But this is the first time that I've preached in the last two months, and I'm excited about it. I'm also very nervous, probably more nervous than I've been at any point in my 41 years of ministry. Nervous because I want my voice to last, for one thing, but also because I want to get across this message today, this theme of the book of Philippians, of our joyous adventure with Jesus. So as we get ready to look at verses 1 through 11, I want to pray, and you can join me. Father, I thank you for the privilege I have to share your word today. It's also a big responsibility. And I pray that you'll help me, through your Holy Spirit, to communicate well. And help all of us to have ears to hear. And that we will not just listen with our ears, our physical ears but that we will take to heart what we hear. And those who know Jesus will be thrilled with the joyous adventure that we're on with our Savior. And those who may not know Jesus will today realize, I need Him. And I ask it in His wonderful name. Amen. If you're like me, you enjoy thrill rides like at various adventure parks. Well, there's a new ride coming up this next spring, April of 2016. It's going to be uh, opened up at Six Flags Great Adventure Park in Jackson, New Jersey. It begins with a climb 12 stories high. And then over the next couple of minutes... It takes six different plunges, 90 degrees in the opposite direction, along with a bunch of spins and twirls. No wonder it's called Total Mayhem 4. I never rode on numbers 1, 2, or 3, and I probably won't ride on number 4, at least at this time. But what a great ride that would be for those who are really into theme park rides, amusement park rides. Today we're going to begin a series of messages from this wonderful letter written by the Apostle Paul to his brothers and sisters in the church at Philippi. In this inspired letter, he's going to take them on the adventure of walking with Jesus and finding joy each day. Wouldn't you like that? I know I do. This servant of God wants them to know and wants us to know that we can look at every event in life, really every day of life, as an opportunity to find joy. A joyous adventure. No mayhem. Just a confident experience of walking close to the Lord Jesus every single day. And in this introductory message, we're going to bypass some of the background material. We'll get to that as we work our way through the book. But I want us instead to look at some foundational features of this exciting journey that we are on with Jesus if we know Him as Savior. We'll learn more about the background later. But I want to begin by saying in the opening verses that this adventure that I'm talking about, that Paul is writing about, includes every 
believer. No one's left out. Look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Paul begins this very personal letter to these Christians in Philippi by using his name and the name of his companion, Timothy. He puts those names first, Paul and Timothy. That's different than the way we write letters today, isn't it? We usually put sincerely Bill or your friend Bill at the end of the letter. But in those days, they started their letters by introducing themselves. And then they would say, the name of the person to whom they were writing. They would say hello to those they wanted to address. The writer here is none other than the Apostle Paul. And this man, Timothy, was his apostolic representative, his missionary partner. Paul met him on his first missionary journey in a town called Lystra. Paul considered him a spiritual son in the faith. They were very close. He writes more about Timothy in his New Testament letters than about any other person with which he was connected. But he doesn't refer to himself as he starts this letter as Apostle Paul. He does that in some of his letters, but not this one. And I think there's a reason for that. It's because he wants them to know that he sees them on the same plane as him. They're on the same adventure. They're in it together. He's not higher than they are. He's not more special than they are. They're all in it together. So instead of using the word apostle, he uses the phrase bondservant. The phrase really means a slave, ready to do the bidding of his master. And Paul did that throughout his whole earthly life as a Christian. And I believe that he says it that way, not apostle, but bond slave, because again, he wants to identify with them. He wants to identify himself and Timothy as equals to the other Christians in the city, all on the same footing as followers of Jesus Christ. The ones that he sees as equals, he calls saints. Notice that. Saints. Holy ones. Set apart ones just like Paul and Timothy were set apart. Just as Paul and Timothy were God's faithful slaves, so these other Christians in Philippi were. And again, to confirm their equal footing, he also writes to the overseers or elders and to the deacons. He doesn't name them. They're not super saints. They're not celebrity Christians. He sees them as equals with everyone else who's a believer in Jesus Christ. Simply that they've been given the responsibility and the privilege, as elders and deacons are today, to be appointed to serve God's church. So all of them, apostle, representative, elder, deacon, saint, all of them, they're on the same adventure following the footsteps of Jesus and experiencing joy along the way. To all of these brothers and sisters, Paul shares with them his sincere desire. 
He wants them to experience on the journey what God intended for them, what God means for you and me to experience on this journey called faith. There are two blessings from God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ that are vital to us experiencing joy, grace and peace. Notice how they're put in that order, grace first and then peace. It's because of the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God towards sinners like us, that we can then have peace with God. Listen to Romans 5 verse 1. It puts it in perspective. Therefore, being justified by faith, that's salvation, we have then peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we receive the free gift of eternal life, salvation by grace, we now realize I am right with God. There's nothing between me and God anymore. My sin is gone. It's out of the way. And now there's this settled confidence. That's what peace means. A settled confidence that everything is right between us. And as the hymn writer would say, it is well with my soul. I hope today that you can say that confidently. It is well with my soul. When we realize that God and I are in an inseparable relationship and that I and my brothers and sisters in the Lord are on the same journey, that brings great joy. This adventure that we're speaking about includes all believers. None is left behind. None is told to stay home. None is told you have to get off the path. Imagine being a young child whose family decides we're going to go to Disneyland. So they all get in the car and they head out hundreds of miles on the journey. And partway through the journey, Dad pulls over and tells this particular child, you get out. You are back there in the back fighting with your brother or your sister over a toy. You get out. You can't go. You have to find your own way back home. I'm sorry. You can't go with us. What parent would do that? God will never say to His children, You're out. You don't belong anymore. You're not allowed to be on this journey. That's not going to happen. Praise God. God doesn't leave anyone out of this joyous experience. We can all have it, and we can have it daily. God, Paul is so certain of this truth that he thanks God profusely for all of them. Again, not just a few key leaders, but all of them are prayed for, and God is working in their hearts, and Paul understands that. None of God's children are excluded or banned. That's plenty of reason for joy, isn't it? It is true that we don't travel this road alone. It's the second thing I want you to see this morning as a feature of this journey that we're on, this adventure. Verse 5 says, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. This famous missionary and preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles rejoiced that he had partners in the work. Partners in sharing the good news with the people of Philippi and many other places. That word partnership in the King James Version is the word fellowship. And it has the idea of 
sharing joyfully in common activity. In this case, the thrilling adventure of telling others about Jesus near and far, about Calvary, about restoration from the eternal effects of sin, death. Paul knew he was never alone in this work. He had men like Timothy and others. He'll mention them in this book. But he also had brothers and sisters 800 miles away in the city of Philippi who were sharing the gospel. They labored in the fields with Paul. And even when Paul was on the road traveling, they shared financially with him. They were the only church that did so, by the way. They shared with Paul financially so he could continue to do what God had called him to do. If there were ever a time Paul could have felt alone, it was while he was in prison in Rome, awaiting trial and eventually execution for his faith. But he didn't feel alone, ever. He knew that there were Christians, brothers and sisters in Philippi, who were with him on the journey. And what an exciting thing it is to know that we are not alone either. I want to, uh, I'm not going to belabor this point again and again in this uh, series in Philippians, but Gloria and I can tell you that we have felt so loved and cared for through your participation with us in this recent and ongoing health trial. Thank you so much for your prayers, your gifts, your phone calls, your texts, your visits, your work projects out at El Shaddai. And I want to say a special thank you to uh, Pastor Jeff and to Matt, to the leaders of our church for all you've done and are doing for us. As Matt said earlier, if this health issue had happened a couple of years ago, I don't know what we would have done. But God brought us the Turkingtons and brought us Jeff and Brenda Thames and brought many of you even just in the last couple of months new people, new faces and that's so exciting and I thank you for your prayers there's unmistakable joy in knowing that we're in this together we're not alone and the Savior himself most importantly is with us every moment of every day right? It is he who said, I will never leave you. Never will I forsake you. And he's serious about that. Those aren't just words. We also realize then that this journey is not haphazard. The route is not careless. The journey is not pointless. Instead, thirdly, God has had this all planned out. And I'm grateful for that. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I hope you're like me. I like to meet people who are confident in the Lord. Not self-confident or cocky, but confident in the Lord. A number of years ago, Gloria and I were given uh, the privilege of going on a cruise to the inner passageway of Alaska. We got to visit towns like Ketchikan and Sitka. But the best part of the trip was we got to be blessed 
by sitting under the powerful teaching of Chuck Swindoll. You talk about someone who's confident in the Lord. It permeated his preaching. And when I got to meet him in person and get my picture taken with him, I noticed that it even broadened his smile. Not that he was taking his picture with me, but that he's confident in the Lord. He has a great sense of humor, if you know about him. But even more importantly, he has a deep conviction that God is in control. And I'm convinced of that too. So was Paul. Convinced that God was in control. He didn't worry about his current imprisonment or his awaiting punishment. Was he just a positive thinker? No. He positively trusted in God. That's different. Paul doesn't even mention his own attitude of trust. He focuses instead on God's sovereignty, that is, God's control over all of the events surrounding his life and the lives of the people in Philippi. He looked back at the trail behind and at the trail stretching in front of them and said, God's had it all planned out from day one. God is totally in control of the adventure that He puts before us. Totally in control. God has been working out His plan for their lives. And He knows the end from the beginning. And more importantly, He's in charge of both the end and the beginning. If you're ever in a situation that looks like it's out of control, just trust God it isn't. Nothing is out of control as far as God's concerned. And in those times, we could throw our hands up and say, I can't go on anymore. Or we can get down on our knees and say, God, you're in control. I'll trust you. God has got this. That doesn't mean that I just plod on with a blissfully ignorant smile on my face any more than it means conversely that I'm going to make this work. I'm the person who's got, got this in charge. I'll make it work the way I want it. I'll fix it. No. God is in control. And all the while that I'm living below, waiting for that day of Christ that Paul talks about here, until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the day when Jesus comes back to take His people to be with Himself. Right till that very day, God's got it all under control. And I praise Him for that. During that remaining time, He has a work to do through you and me. Here's how Paul put that in the very last book he wrote before he was executed. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but unto all those who love His appearing. I could just ask you this morning, and I ask myself, do we love His appearing? That is, are we excited that Jesus could come back any moment? Maybe even before we get out to Riverdale for the baptism service. 
And then some of you who maybe are a little nervous about it, you wouldn't have to worry about it. You'd be in heaven. Knowing that God has the adventure all mapped out doesn't mean that life is going to be a piece of cake. Fourthly, look with me at the fact that the trek isn't always easy. Verse 7, Paul says, It is only right for me to feel this way about all of you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers or partners of grace with me. We're seven verses into the book and now Paul mentions his imprisonment. If, in fact, he was in the Mamertine prison... This is a picture of what that looked like. It's a real place. It's in the city of Rome. It's 20 feet under the ground. If Paul really was there, and tradition says he was, I don't know for sure, but it's a good guess that he was. I want you to realize that that jail cell was nothing like a modern jail cell. The conditions were deplorable the average person would not be able to handle the sights and sounds and especially the smells from that dungeon 20 feet under the streets of Rome, not far from the Colosseum. Besides that, every day Paul was chained to a wall and to a soldier. The soldiers came in on eight-hour shifts and were locked on to Paul 24-7 until he would have his eventual trial and face his execution. But I want you to notice that Paul doesn't speak about his deplorable condition. He doesn't use depressing language to, to talk about it. He just says that there was an imprisonment. He focuses instead on how close his heart is to these Philippians, to these spiritual siblings of his miles away from Rome. And please notice in our text that he links this imprisonment with the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Again, no sense of frustration here. Paul could have been very upset that now he can't be back out on the streets of Rome or some other city sharing the gospel. He doesn't worry about that. He doesn't worry about the fact that he's not allowed now to travel to other places as he had before and preach. Instead, he's rejoicing that the Philippians get to work with him, even though from a distance. They get to give an apologetic, a defense of the gospel. That word uh, defense here is translated from a word that we get our word apology from, but it doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry about this it means I believe this with all my heart and I'm defending this truth about Jesus but he also speaks here of the confirmation of the gospel I take that to mean that Paul was excited about the fact that his situation even though he was in prison was a confirmation that God's word would not return empty or void but it would accomplish what God sent it to do that God's word would not fall on deaf ears think of the fact that he's chained to a soldier all day three soldiers a day 
He's praying, as he says here. He's praying. You can imagine those Roman soldiers, some of them had no religious background. They're probably thinking, what in the world is he doing? What is all that babbling about? Why is he praying to some god? What's that going to do for him? But he realizes that he's still able to spread the truth about God's love, even right under the Emperor Nero's nose. I think it's no surprise to most Christians that everywhere the Word of God has been proclaimed and where people have trusted Jesus as Savior, God's work and God's church have expanded, not diminished. Did you hear that correctly? His Word and His work have expanded, not diminished. Communism couldn't stop it all those years. And today, there are those within radical Islam who would put an end to it, killing Christians left and right, and yet the Word of God is not stopped. Praise Him. In fact, many of those former Muslims are abandoning that false religion and trusting Jesus as their Savior, even at the cost of their lives. I'd like to share a quote with you from a song put out years ago by Bill and Gloria Gaither. Gloria usually says this about midway through the song. The song is titled, Let the Church Be the Church. Here's what she says. There have been times of affluence and prosperity when the church's message was nearly diluted into oblivion by those who sought to make it socially attractive, neatly organized, and financially profitable. It has been gold-plated, draped in purple, encrusted with jewels. It has been misrepresented, ridiculed, blotted, and scorned. These followers of Jesus Christ have been, according to the whim of the times, elevated as sacred leaders and martyred as heretics. Yet through it all, there marches on that powerful army of the meek. God's chosen people who can't be bought, flattered, murdered, or stilled. On through the ages they march. The church, God's church triumphant, is alive and well. Can I hear an amen? Amen. God's church is alive and well. And nothing can stop it. No one can stop it. And what makes... This adventure so exciting is that though the trek isn't easy, no one can stop or top God. He's in control. He's alive and well, and so is the church. And yet, on this journey, we're not just skating along oblivious to everything going on around us. We're using real-life situations in light of the Word of God to realize some wonderful truths, some things that we need to learn along the way. That's the fifth feature of this journey. There are some great things to learn, so much to learn along the way. Paul says in verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with affection, the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul does something very special for his friends back in Philippi. 
He prays faithfully for them. And he prays specifically for them. Paul in his prayers, I'm sure, was not used to saying with hands folded and eyes bowed, God bless all the people in Philippi. God bless all the Christians in in Thessalonica. God bless all the Christians in Rome. No, he prayed specifically for them. He says in this text that he prays for each one of them. His prayer list must have been huge. And he's not just saying he prays. In fact, he calls God into account and says, God is my witness. If God were right here right now, he could tell you how often I pray for you and how each one of you are being prayed for. God could testify to his prayer life. God could verify that he has been bombarding the gates of heaven with his requests for these dear friends every chance he gets. Chained to a guard all day, he's got time to talk to God, and he does. He pleads with God. He's not pleading for release. He's not pleading for a chance to stand before a tribunal and and speak his case. He's pleading for his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the first and most important request that he makes is that his brothers and sisters in the Lord, along with him, would grow in their love more and more and more, that they would abound in it. So he simply asks that the love that God has put in us, and by the way, we have, whether we know it or not, if we're Christians, the capacity to love like God does. That's in us. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. The Holy Spirit puts the love of God in us so that we can love like God loves. But Paul says, I want that love to grow and grow, to abound more and more. If I were to uh, violently shake this can of Pepsi, which is currently sealed, if I were to violently shake it and uh, point it at someone in the audience, I'm not going to do that, and pop the top, somebody's going to get wet. That's what carbonation does. But I thought of this as I thought of that passage there that our love would abound more and more. What Paul is really saying, if you will, is that we would pop the top of God's love and let it spread everywhere. That the love of God would fall upon people all around us through us as we seek to love them the way He would. But it starts with knowledge. The knowledge of the love of God. Where are we going to get that knowledge? God's Word. The Bible. The more time we spend in the Bible, the more time we study God's Word, the more we're going to find out how much God loves us. We may never fully understand it in this life, but we'll know it more and more and more. And in the process, we'll know how to love others. Not only will we gain an appreciation for God's love for us, we'll gain an appreciation for His love for everyone out on the streets of Preston or your hometown. 
We already know the why of love. It's because God loved us first. But we also can discover the who of love. Who needs to be loved? Well, let me ask you this question. Do you need to be? I do. We pretty much know that everyone wants to be loved. Wants to experience love. We can also know at least part of the how of love. Namely, that love is practical, not theoretical. Love is doing something, not saying something. If a husband says to his wife during their years of marriage, Honey, I love you, but he never shows it, those words are pretty hollow. But if he says it and shows it, he's confirming that love. We also know something of the when of that love. We are to love like God does during our whole earthly journey, during this whole adventure with Christ, without a time limit. Just keep on loving. Because God does. He never stops. He never takes a break. He keeps loving until that day when faith becomes sight and love is perfectly expressed in the presence of the God who first loved us. I want to talk about another feature of this journey, and that is that this joy ride has an end in sight. He says, So that you may approve things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul's request for them now becomes very specific. It includes an end goal, a purpose. That is that we would someday stand before God, full of joy, excited to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Paul prays specifically for a God-given ability to determine the best pursuits in life. The word that he uses here in this passage, approve, is an interesting word. It was often used in classical Greek to refer to a professor who would give out degrees to those students who had met the the class qualifications, who had finished all their work. But the professor could also say to the other students, you're not quite ready yet. You need to study a little harder. You need to do a little more work. Paul is using that as if to say that one goal of this adventure that we're on with Jesus is to be able to give two thumbs up to the right kind of activities, the right kind of involvement of our lives with others that will earn us a degree, if you will, as God's approved servants. God desires that we live lives that are sincerely sincerely in love with Him and with others. God is the one who will keep us blameless. But we can buck that. We can choose to do things that are blameworthy. We can choose to sin against God and bring a reproach on the name of Christ and on His church. But why would we do that? I'll leave the answer to you for that question. But our position with God is blamelessness. 
our position with God is perfect righteousness not our own but Christ Paul prayed this way for another group of believers 1 Thessalonians 5.23 he says and may the very God of peace sanctify you wholly and I pray God your spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ but the main feature of this prayer is that this would go on until the day of Christ the day he comes back again By the way, nothing is standing in the way of Jesus returning at any moment. Nothing. There's nothing that has to be fulfilled yet before Jesus can come back. It could happen today. So this day is a day when we come to the end of our earthly sojourn and spend eternity in heaven in a mansion He's prepared for us and where we begin then the greatest adventure of them all to be with Jesus to be with God for all of eternity that's our ultimate purpose our adventure has a purpose as God planned it and that purpose is to bring him glory forever in his presence in a place of perfect peace and joy years ago uh, Gloria took some online courses to uh, work on a master's degree in biblical counseling. When she finished that course, it took a couple of years, we, drove, we traveled down to Orlando, Florida, where Cornerstone University was located, which offered the degree. She had some classes to take during the week, and then at the end of the week we had a, a walk-the-aisle celebration where she got her master's degree. You know what I did all week? I found online a uh, $99 special for seven days at Universal Studios. (laughs) So every day I would catch the shuttle to Universal Studios and I would literally ride rides all day. (laughs) Gloria would come home at supper time and we'd have supper together and I'd talk with her about her day. But the next morning I'm back out there riding the rides all day at Universal Studios. Not a real famous pursuit. Not a lofty purpose. Oh, by the way, I also got to see her actually graduate. (laughs) But that was not a divine purpose on my part. Paul is saying his prayer has a divine purpose. To see these people walk with God throughout their whole earthly sojourn and find joy in the doing of it and then to be in God's presence for all of eternity. Why do we get to go to heaven anyway? Because we've been good people? Because we've done a lot of nice things for others? No. According to Paul, it's because Jesus is our righteousness. He's the very reason for this whole adventure. Look at the end of verse 11. He says that this righteousness comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It starts as a gift from God. It's not my righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. But the exciting thing, friends, is that when God looks at me or you, if we know Jesus is Savior, He sees us as righteous as His own Son. 
wow. He sees us as perfect as Jesus is. I could never be that perfect during this earthly life, nor could you. But God sees us that way through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Here's what Paul said in this same letter, Philippians 3, verse 9. His desire, he says, was to be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So no wonder he says that this comes through Christ Jesus and it's all to the glory and praise of God. Understanding that can't help but bring joy. I don't go to heaven because I'm a good person. No one will ever be there for that reason. We go to heaven because we've trusted Jesus as Savior and God has made us as righteous as Christ is And because He sees us in that righteousness, we get to stand in His holy presence and worship Him for all of eternity. Just a closing illustration. On January 27th of this year, Auschwitz, some of you young people won't know that name, Auschwitz celebrated the 70th anniversary of being liberated by the Allied forces. In attendance was an 81-year-old woman named Eva Moses Kaur. She's an Auschwitz survivor. That was a concentration camp. She'd lost both her parents, two of her sisters, her grandparents, several aunts and uncles, all at the hands of the Nazis. She and her twin sister who were just 10 years old at the time, were among 200 sets of twins, among 1,500, who survived the awful medical experiments of a Dr. Joseph Mengele. As the Huffington Post reported, Eva has returned to Auschwitz, where she always sings and dances on the very platform where she saw her family for the last time. Eva says, that's where they took away the joy of my life and my family. But this way, I reclaim it. I'm here to tell you this morning, no one can take your joy away. No one. Unless you give it up, that joy will always be there. It's a recurring theme of this book. And we will benefit from studying it and claiming our joy as a gift from God. And if we keep claiming it, life until then, until the day of Christ, until we reach heaven, will be a joyous adventure with Jesus. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning. We're going to sing a closing song. It's a very well-known song written a long time ago, but it has some powerful words, and I hope they're your testimony this morning. Would you stand and sing with me until then? (laughs) My heart can sing when I pause to remember a heartache is but a stepping stone 
that's winding always upward this troubled world is not my final home but until then my heart will go on singing until then with joy thank all of you for listening so uh, patiently I know my voice wasn't always as strong all the way through the message as uh, it used to be but it'll come back I hope but I thank you for listening but more importantly I want to challenge you to experience the joy God has already given you every day by spending time in his word learning how much he loves you and then sharing that love with other people God bless you. I want to meet uh, up front here for just two or three minutes with all the ones that are getting baptized. And the rest of you, you we'll see you out at Riverdale Resort. Take Highway 34 on the north end of town, and we'll see you there in a few minutes.